James Beattie was a Scottish poet who lived in the 1700s. And one day, James Beattie decided that he wanted to teach his young son about God. So the way he decided to do this was that James took a handful of seeds and he went to their garden that they had there at their home. And he planted the seeds by arranging them to spell out his son's first name. So a number of days passed. James was in his house and all of a sudden his son burst into the room. And he told his dad that he had to come and see something this is incredible that was happening in the garden. Well, James pretended to not really be interested, but eventually he allowed himself to be persuaded. He went to the garden with his son, and sure enough, his son showed him these plants that were growing. They, they were forming the letters of his name. James looked at him, and he said, yeah, it's not really a big deal, son. There's nothing really worth noting here. It's just mere coincidence, mere chance that the plants look like this. He turned around and walked away. Well, his son grabbed him by the coat and insisted that it, this couldn't be a coincidence, that somebody, somebody had to have arranged the plants this way. So James turned around and looked at his son. He said, you're telling me you don't think this happened by chance. His son said, no, there's just no way. So his father said, well, son, I want you to look at yourself for a minute. Look at your hands, your fingers, your legs, your feet, your other limbs. Aren't they regular in their appearance and quite useful to you? Did you come about by chance? Well, son said, no, no, something must have created me. Something must have arranged me, formed me. His father said, and who do you think that something is? And on that day, James Beattie's young son started to understand the reality of the creator God. Now, I understand that critics of Christianity today would dismiss a story like this. They would say, how primitive. They would say, science has taught us so much more. We don't need God to explain our legs, our limbs, our arms. We don't need God for that. But church, the reality is that science has gone on to show more and more that we have been spectacularly, and boy, it seems purposefully, designed. 200 years since the days of James Beattie, and we now have an overwhelming amount of information about just how complex our bodies really are. Let me give you some examples of that. Consider for a second the cells that make up our bodies. On average, our bodies contain over 30 trillion cells. 30 trillion. And our bodies are made up of about 200 different kinds of cells. White blood cells, red blood cells, things like that. Now look, cells come and go. They die and then they get replaced, all without us even thinking about it. Our bodies are well-functioning machines. In fact, your body makes around two to three million new red blood cells every single second of the day, without you even thinking about it. That's over 170 billion new cells each day. And each cell is incredibly complex. The Nobel Prize winning chemist Linus Pauling once said that each cell in the human body is more complex than New York City. You see, it's true that creation and our increasing understanding of it declares day by day the glory of God. And as Christians, it's good that we praise God for these things. But here's the thing. It's one thing to praise God for what he has done, and it's another thing to praise God for who he is. Believers, how can we praise and worship God if we don't 
know God. Well, how can we love him who loves us if we don't know him? How can we live lives of obedience if we don't know the one whom we are obeying? You see, the more we know of creation, the greater our praise should be to God for his creative work. But the more we know our creator, the more we know who he is, the greater our obedience and worship and relationship with him will be. So, for the next few weeks, we're going to start focusing on our great God, beginning this morning with why we believe in God the Father. Why we believe in God the Father. If you have a Bible with you, I'm going to encourage you, follow along as best you can. Go ahead and turn, for now, to Matthew chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, as always, I encourage you to use one of those Bibles here in the sanctuary. Find those under the seat in front of you. If you'd like to use one of those, you can turn to page 785. Matthew chapter 3. We're going to be in Matthew 3 in just a couple minutes. Like I said, I'd encourage you to have your Bible ready to follow along. And certainly have a pen ready, because I'm going to mention a lot of references this morning that I would encourage you to write down so that you can go home and look these things up. So let's start very broadly with who our God is, so that we all understand who our God is. As Christians, we are monotheistic. That means that we believe in one God. All right, Mono, one, single. One God. This is what the Bible says in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Right, Jesus reaffirmed this truth in Mark chapter 12, as do several other passages in the New Testament. We believe that there is one God. We also believe that our God is triune. See, when we talk about God the Father, as we will in a little bit today, when we talk about God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. We're not talking about three different gods. That would be polytheism. Okay? We're talking about monotheism, okay? Nor are we talking about three different modes of being, where uh, in one moment God is, is acting as the Father over here, and then, and then He comes over here and he, He's being the Son, and then another moment He comes over here and acts as the Holy Spirit. That's not what we're talking about either. Now, one theologian defined the Trinity well, that while God is only one divine nature... There are three persons called Father, Son, and Holy Spirit who are equal in nature and distinct in person. Or we call this the Trinity. Now, the Bible doesn't use the word Trinity, but the Bible reveals the truth of the Trinity. Let me share some examples of that. At the very beginning of Scripture, all the way back in the book of Genesis, in creation, God says in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, He says, Let us make mankind... In our image. Well, let us can't refer to God talking to the angels because the angels don't have any creative power. and We're not told that we're made in their likeness. No, we're made in the image of, of God. In fact, there are similar let us statements found in Genesis chapter 3 and in chapter 11. Statements which point us to the Trinity. And there are a few other places in the Old Testament, but it's in the New Testament where the truth really begins to come to light for us about the reality of the Trinity. On many occasions, Jesus, the Son of God, spoke of God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, as being distinct from Himself. Right? Jesus prayed to the Father. Jesus promised His disciples that He would send to them the Holy Spirit when He departed. In fact, here's an example in Scripture 
of each member of the Trinity being present at the same time. Now we can look at Matthew chapter 3 together. This was when Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist. It says in Matthew 3, verse 16, As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. And at that moment, heaven was opened. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Now there are many other verses that we could look at, but the point for now is that as one early church creed put it, church, we worship one God in Trinity and the Trinity in unity, neither blending their persons nor dividing their essence. See, this is a core doctrine of Christianity, the Trinity. It's also one of the few doctrines that I am willing to say we may not fully grasp this side of heaven. And the reason for that is because when we talk about the Trinity, we're dealing with something for which we don't have an exact picture of on earth. All right, think of it like this. In the 19th century, there's a story that was written about a fictional place called Flatland. And Flatland was a two-dimensional world inhabited by shapes. Nice squares, circles, triangles. You get the picture. Well, one day in Flatland, a square was introduced to the sphere. Well, the sphere visited Flatland from his own world of three dimensions. So later on in the story, the square tries to describe the sphere to his, his fellow Flatland residents, and despite his best efforts, he's not able to do it. Because he doesn't have anything in his two-dimensional world that he can point to to really describe the sphere. So despite his best efforts, the other shapes decide that he's crazy. They lock the square up. See, the point is that in a similar way, there's no truly perfect example of the Trinity in this world. No truly perfect one. Uh, Now, of course, the church through the centuries has tried to think of good pictures Uh, Many of the ones that you might hear aren't good examples, but I'm going to share with you two of what I believe are two of the best examples, best pictures that might help us understand the reality of the Trinity. So the first one, and many of us may have heard of this before, is the triangle. Of course, a triangle is made up of three sides that are equal yet distinct from one another, and only together do they form one complete shape. So the triangle is... This is a good picture of the Trinity. But for those of you out there who love math, another good picture would be the mathematical equation, one to the third power. This is how we would write that out. One times one times one equals one. This would be a good picture simply because in this equation, each number is distinct, yet equal, and together they equal one and not many. So there's a couple good pictures that we could look to Perhaps those will be helpful for some of us. See, the doctrine of the Trinity, it's, it's difficult, but it's biblical. And we ought to do our best to understand it in light of what God has revealed. He revealed a little bit in the Old Testament. He revealed more in the New Testament. And we'll finally have our best understanding when we are in eternity with our great God. But until eternity... Let's still seek to understand each member of the Trinity to the very best of our abilities. We're going to begin this morning by talking about God the Father. 
So if you're following along in your Bible, go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 6. Let's see what Jesus teaches us about God the Father. Matthew 6. It's on page 787 if you're following along in one of those Bibles here in the sanctuary. Matthew chapter 6, we're going to begin in verse 9. Jesus is speaking. He says, this then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Let's stop right there. Who is God the Father? Perhaps you've heard the story of the little boy who came home one day from church. And his mom asked him what he learned. The boy said that that day in Sunday school he learned God's name. She said, did you now? He said, yeah. He said, the teacher told me that God's name is Howard. His mom said, what are you talking about? God's name isn't Howard? He said, yes, it is. He said, my Sunday school teacher said that Jesus taught us when we pray, you say, our Father who art in heaven, Howard be your name, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, of course, we know that God's name isn't Howard, but his name is Hallowed. And what that means is that God the Father's name ought to be honored. God the Father is worthy of all praise and glory and honor. There's a reason that one of the Ten Commandments is that we are not to take God's name in vain. So what a shame that countless Christians today are very flippant all day long with God's name instead of giving honor to their Heavenly Father. So we should ask, why why should God's name be honored? Look, God is far above all created things. In His great power and wisdom, God the Father is the architect of all creation. You know, mankind, we might make things, mankind, but we can't make anything out of nothing. God made all things out of nothing. More than that, nothing that we do make can compare to what God has created. And so we pray that his kingdom would come because it is far greater than any kingdom that man can create. Not only this, but we pray for God's will because his will, his plans, designs, and desires are far greater than ours. That's why we pray that his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. Because, you know, even when our will is focused on something good, the truth is that we're imperfect. And we don't know the future. And we don't know what's best in the end. Yet 1 John chapter 3, verse 20 tells us that God, God knows everything. So we can rest assured that his will is better because he knows what will be best in the long run. He does know what's going to happen. God the Father's designs are perfect and his knowledge is greater than ours. We ask him for our daily bread. Why? Because God the Father provides for his people. And it's not just the food we eat that he provides. No, it's even the air that we breathe. Like the psalmist says in Psalm chapter 3, verse 5, we ought to know that we lie down and sleep and we awake again because the Lord sustains us. Or like Paul talked about in Philippians 4.19, we know that God will meet all our needs in Christ Jesus because He cares for us. Why? Because we have a loving, heavenly 
father. He's loving. And he's perfect. You see, earthly fathers know that their kids need things. And I know that my kids need milk and water and food, clothes, sleep. I know that they need things. But I don't always know exactly what they need in every single moment. For example, my youngest son is in that really fun age where he can communicate, but he can't say a lot of words. So sometimes Simon will walk up to me and he's crying. And I'll, I'll pick him up because I want to help. And that's when the guessing game is on. Because I'll say, Simon, what's wrong? Are you hurt? I'll say, no. I'll say, well, uh, do you want a toy? Is there something that you love? No. Well, are you hungry? Yeah. Well, there we go. You want some animal crackers? No. And on and on the cycle goes. Because, look, no matter what age kids are, parents are always going to have missteps. They're going to make mistakes. But not our Heavenly Father. No, no, no. He, he knows exactly what we need. He knows exactly what's going on in our situations. And he knows how to care for us. That's because he is all-knowing. He's all-powerful to provide. And he is perfectly loving towards us. See, he's perfect, our Heavenly Father. And so as Jesus pointed out, we go to our Heavenly Father and we pray to him to forgive us for our imperfections, our debts, those sins that we have committed. After all, all of our sins are first and foremost against our Creator God. It's his commands that we have broken. You know, someone has once asked, in regard to God's moral commands, the question has been asked, are those commands good because God commanded them, or does God command them because they are just inherently good on their own? Well, neither of those things is correct. God commands because He is good. God the Father is holy. He's perfectly righteous. There's... No imperfection in him, which means that all of his commands are the overflow of his perfect nature. Yet we are imperfect. We fall. We fail to obey his commands. And so we run to him for forgiveness because he's merciful towards us. He does forgive us because he's gracious to bring us near to him. Not only this, but we can go to him in prayer for strength to overcome temptation. Look more about that in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13 at home. We can go to Him for strength to overcome temptation and the devil. God the Father is supreme in power. He's perfect in His purposes, loving and merciful towards His people. And He is great. Isaiah 66 says that heaven is His throne and earth is His footstool. Psalm 24 says that all things belong to Him. It's God the Father who sent the Son to this earth so that through faith in the Son of God, we might become children of God the Father. Why does it matter that we know who the Father is? It's because then we'll better understand what it means to be His child, believers. And we've all probably heard the phrase, we're all God's children, said about mankind. We've all probably heard people say that on TV, in the news, whatever. We're all God's children. Even the Pope has said that on more than one occasion. Very popular phrase. It's, it's a very nice thought. Very unifying. It's very kumbaya, that phrase. It's also very unbiblical. Because according to the Bible, every person is God's creation, 
But not every person is God's child. Well, the Bible's very clear that until we come to faith in Jesus Christ, we're children of wrath. We're children of the devil. But the Bible also tells us in John chapter 1 that to all who receive Jesus Christ as their Savior, they are given the right to become children of God. Let's look at this together. Actually, if you've got your Bible with you, go ahead and turn to Galatians chapter 4. If you're using one of those Bibles here in the sanctuary, that's page 945. Galatians chapter 4, we're going to start in verse 4. We read this. It says, But when the set time had fully come, God sent His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are His sons, God sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts. The Spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are His child, God made you also an heir. The moment that you put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior, you are adopted into God's family. You become his child. You can call him your father. And knowing your heavenly father, believers, should impact how you are living your earthly life the more that you get to know him. Growing up, there was a a phrase that my dad used to say to his kids all the time. He would always tell us, uh, hey, be a leader. Don't be a follower. He'd see us do something. He'd say, ah, ah. Be a leader. Don't be a follower. You can still hear him saying that. And that's because my dad didn't want his kids to follow the foolish things that other people were doing. So he told us to be a leader instead. And he demonstrated what that looked like in his life. It was important to him that one part of being a child in the crop household was learning to live like a leader. Because that's what he desired for his kids. Well, as Christians, we're a part of God's household. And so we should ask, what does the Heavenly Father want His children to be? What should it look like for us to live as His children, as part of His household? So here's just a few things that I believe should define children of God. As we grow to know our Heavenly Father and His commands, here's three things. The first one is that the child of God should be defined by obedience. The child of God should be defined by obedience. The true child of God will love God. And 1 John 5, verse 2 tells us that if we love God, we're going to keep his commands. Now, does this mean that God's children never sin? No. In fact, the Bible is very clear in 1 John 1 that if, Christian, if you claim that you're without sin, you're a liar. No, we still sin. We still make mistakes. In fact, Hebrews chapter 12 tells us that God's children will experience his discipline when they sin. But the child of God is not to be defined by sin, but rather by obedience to him. And as we learn our Heavenly Father's commands, as we see his holiness demonstrated in Scripture, we should desire to follow his commands. 
so that we would be holy as he is holy. The child of God should be defined by obedience. Second, the child of God should be defined by confidence. Confidence in eternal things, on one hand. The child of God should be confident in their salvation, that they are eternally secure because no one can take them out of their heavenly Father's grasp. Jesus said this about all believers in John chapter 10, verse 29. Jesus said, My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. The child of God can be confident about their eternity. On the other hand, the child of God can also be confident about the things of this life. Because even in difficult situations, the child of God can be confident knowing, as James chapter 1, verse 5 tells us, that God's wisdom is available to them if they go to the Lord in faithful prayer. They can be confident that they can cast their anxieties at his feet, as 1 Peter 5, 7 tells us, because he cares for them. And the child of God can be confident that our Heavenly Father is going to work all things together for His good and greater purposes, no matter what happens. Romans chapter 8, verse 28 assures us of that. And finally, the last thing is that the child of God should not be defined by fear. The child of God shouldn't be defined by fear. And don't get me wrong, there are many things that people fear in this life. I, myself, not fond of heights, okay? Roller coasters, not interesting. Climbing on top of the Family Life Center to check on Pastor Richard when he was working on the skylights, worst day in the office that I've ever had. (laughs) We all may have things that make us fearful, but fear should not define the child of God, especially, especially in what I believe people fear most, and I believe that people fear most Uh, They fear loss the most. The loss of loved ones. Loss of their own life. Loss of money, of possession, safety, comfort, security. They fear loss of these things. And I'm not saying that Christians don't face sorrow during times of loss. But the child of God does not need to live in the fear of such losses as these. Because even if the child of God faces the loss of every friend and every loved one and every person, if they feel deep loneliness, they can know that they are never completely alone. Because God has assured us in Hebrews 13, verse 5, that he will never leave us nor forsake us. We will never lose our relationship with him. We don't need to fear the loss of comfort or possessions or resources because even if we do lose those things, we've been assured in Matthew chapter 6 that our Heavenly Father... He knows what we need, and he knows how to care for our deepest needs. The child of God doesn't need to fear the loss of life because we will never be lost to an eternity in hell. We know where we are going. The child of God does not need to fear man or the devil because the one who created them is above all, and that is the one that we call Abba, Father. Believers, the more that we know about our great God, the more we'll understand how we've been called to live as his people. And those of us here this morning who can say with confidence that we are children of God, we need to make sure that we are no longer living the way that we once did when we were children of the devil. See, back in those days, we were spiritually blind. We were bound to sin. The Bible says we were slaves to sin. And we were wandering aimlessly through life, headed towards an eternity in hell with our father, the devil. That's what we once were. 
But all that has changed, believer. Now, now we've been adopted into God's family through faith in Jesus Christ. Now we look forward to spending an eternity in the glorious presence of our Heavenly Father. And until that day, believers, we should not be found living confused, fearful, disobedient lives. Now we've been called to something greater. We have been called to boldly live for our Heavenly Father. The truth this morning is this. The more that we know and obey our Heavenly Father, the more the world will know that we are His children. And I want us to consider that for a moment. Believers, the way that we're living our lives, is it clear to other people that we're children of God? When they see us, do they see that there's something different about us? We're not going along with the ways of this world, our world and its ever-changing morality, does whatever it's want, they live in selfishness and sin. Do they see something different in us? Because if not, then something needs to change. If you're here this morning and you are a child of God, and you can say that with confidence, I'm going to encourage you to evaluate that question. Is the way that you are living your life to make it evident that you are a child of God? I also want to encourage every believer here to spend more time getting to know your Heavenly Father. If you're not already doing this, believer, then start every day this next week. Every day. Start your day by reading your Bible and getting to know your Heavenly Father more. Take another look at some of these passages that I mentioned this morning. Don't take my word for it. Look in the Bible. Learn more about your Heavenly Father. Learn more about the way that He wants you to live. Learn more about His love for you. Learn more about His grace and His mercy and His greatness so that we would be found living as children of God. If you're here and Jesus Christ is not your Savior, you've never given your life to Him, you've never gone to Jesus for the forgiveness of your sin, and understand, I already made it very clear that, I hope, that God is holy, and He's righteous. That God is also good, but here's the thing, for God to be both good and righteous, that means that God must punish sin. And the Bible says that the just punishment for our sin is that after this life, we're going to be separated forever from God in a place of torment called hell. That's some bad news. But friend, the good news is that God is also loving. And in His great love for us, God sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to this earth. And Jesus Jesus died on the cross to pay that penalty for our sin to take that punishment for us. So that when we go to Him in faith, we'll be forgiven of our sins, we'll be pardoned from that penalty of hell, and we'll be adopted into God's family. Jesus didn't stay in the grave after He died. No, He powerfully rose from the dead. And right now in heaven, He's standing there waiting to forgive you of your sins. The Bible is very clear in Romans 10.9 that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. Friend, in the moment you give your life to Jesus Christ, you will be pardoned from that penalty of hell forever. You'll be forgiven of all your sins, and you will be adopted into God's family. That is when you become a child of God. And if you have never made that decision, we want you to be able to do that before you leave. Would you pray with me? Friend, if that's 
If that's where you're at this morning, you're here and, and you don't know what's going to happen after this life. You, you can't say with confidence that Jesus is your Savior. You don't know that you know that you know that you've been forgiven and saved from hell. If that's where you're at, then understand, you, you can come and talk to me during this final song that we're going to sing. Whatever questions you might have, we can pray together. But maybe you're ready right now to give your life to Jesus Christ and to come into God's family. And if you're ready to do that, I don't want you to have to wait another moment. Friend, the Bible says that whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. And if you're ready to call on His name and put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior, you can do that right now, where you're sitting. You can pray something simple like this. And friend, if you go to the Lord in faith with a prayer like this, I promise you on the authority of God's Word, He'll rescue you from sin and hell and bring you into His family. You can pray, Dear Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner. I know that I've broken Your commands. But Jesus, I believe You died on the cross for my sins. I believe that You didn't stay in the grave, but that You rose from the dead. Jesus, today I'm asking You to forgive me of my sins. I'm asking You to be my Lord and Savior. I'm giving You my life today. I'm ready to be a part of the family of God. And friend, if you did pray that, I hope that you'll share it with someone before you leave. Dear Heavenly Father, for those of us who have made that decision, who can say this morning that we know we are children of God, I pray that you would lay it on each of our hearts, a desire to know you more so that we would praise you more for who you are, so that we'd be found living lives of obedience, and so that we would be confident that because we are your children, we will always be your children. You've laid out very clearly how you want us to live in your word, and so help us to be faithful to these things. And I pray that as we do live in a way that pleases you, you would give us opportunities to point people to Jesus Christ, the only one who can rescue them from sin and hell. Let this be a place, First Baptist Church of Oxford, let this be a place where you are glorified. And let each of our lives, Father, be lives that point people to Jesus Christ. Father, we love you. But you prove day after day that you love us more. Help us to see that each day. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.